0: Today, on the Christian calendar that Christians have observed for almost 2,000 years, uh, begins this season of Advent. And Advent is actually the beginning of a new year, which I I think is kind of brilliant from our our distant ancestors because what they realized is that the the Christian story begins, the Jesus story begins when daylight is, when, when the light is leaving, right? When there's less and less light in the world, they began their liturgical year, their, their year of worship, they began that by announcing that light has come into the world. And so today we begin a new year with the season of Advent. Advent is a word, it's a Latin word that actually just means coming or arrival. Um, and it's of course about the coming or arrival Jesus. Advent is a season of preparation, a season of anticipation, a season of waiting, and a season of longing. But Advent isn't just a season that looks backward. Advent is also a season that looks forward. Advent looks forward to the kind of world that could be born, the kind of world that could be created, the kind of place we all could live. Advent looks forward and says, what if that world might be possible? And I don't know about you, but there's something about this time of year in this season that kind of at times makes me a little bit, maybe just a little bit hopeful that that kind of world could be born. Does anybody else have that feeling ever? Like this time of year? No, just me. I'm okay with that. I will believe it enough for all of us because there's something about this season that just even maybe for the hardest, grinchiest heart, can kind of crack it open a little bit and let a little light in. And it it kind of makes you begin to at least be willing to hope that another kind of world could be born. And so during the weeks of Advent, we talk about hope, peace, joy, and love. But we don't talk about them as fulfilled longings. We talk about them as unfulfilled longings because we live in a world that desperately still needs hope. And we live in a world that hasn't even come close to peace in a world where joy can seem a little bit silly or, or hard to come by, and a world where love is not our guiding motivator, it's not our compass, it's not our North Star. And so during Advent, we lean into these longings and we wonder if we actually could begin to be these kinds of people in the world, what might be possible in the world around us? And, and I think we need to ground our experience over the next several weeks in an understanding that the way we typically talk and sing about Christmas Kind of is a little bit off, and I mean it's a lot off in lots of ways. But it's a little bit off in some ways, and, and here's what I mean: we're, we're gonna we sing songs during this season that maybe we don't believe literally, or maybe that the language doesn't line up with how we normally talk about things. But they're songs everybody likes to sing because it's Christmas time, right? That that's a thing that happens. But if you think about a lot of the language in Christmas, or you think about nativity scenes, which I I think are great, but it, it, there's sort of this thing of like, oh, it's all all is calm. And bright. And you know, 6.8 pound baby Jesus is lying in the manger, just quiet and still on some hay, which is super comfortable. And Mary just gave birth, but she's fine. She's willing to entertain all these guests that she doesn't know, who just keep showing up randomly without an you know an invitation. Um, and, and there's just sort of this, we, we've sanitized the Christmas story and we've, we've extracted it from its context. And in doing so, I think we lose the power of the story because whatever you believe about how literal these stories are, um, there's something going on in these stories that it's grounded deeply in a context. And the context of the first Christmas stories is a context of oppression. Jesus was born into a place that was occupied by a foreign power. And up to that point, it was the largest economic and military superpower the world had ever known or fathomed of. Jesus was born in the Roman empire. Jesus was born in an oppressed people in the Roman empire. Jesus grew up in communities of people who were marginalized and forgotten. People who like, I don't think we realize like, that there, par- there are some parts of the Bible that I think maybe there's a, some literalness to. And this is one of them when Jesus said, give us today our daily bread, that he's not waxing poetic. He's actually articulating a concern that his community had on a daily basis. Are we going to get bread for today? And so Jesus is born into this context of oppression. And the people who knew Jesus and followed Jesus and were transformed by the experience of Jesus, when they began to sit back and try to think about their experience and they wanted to talk about who Jesus was for them, they had to begin to reimagine. And they did the same thing that so many of us have done. They went back to their scriptures for them, the Hebrew Bible. They went back to their Bible and they began to reread it because Jesus had thrown them a curveball they didn't expect. And so they're rereading scripture, going, How did we miss this? How did we, how did we not expect Jesus to be this type of person? How do we not expect this kind of work? And they're they're rereading their scripture and they're reimagining it. Somebody said to me the other day, the Bible is one unifying story pointing to Jesus through divine authorship. And I just was like, false, actually. Um, no, seriously. I was like, false, actually. Um, that's a really bad way to do the Bible. And here's why. That that way of reading the Bible seems, well, first of all, it's, it's kind of anti-Semitic, uh, which is a big problem. But it essentially says all of this stuff didn't matter until we realized it was about this Jesus person. And I think what makes it significant is that actually all of that stuff did matter. It mattered to a whole lot of people. It was helpful to a whole lot of people. And when the first Jesus followers went back and read it, they began to reinterpret scripture and begin to see Jesus in Does that make sense? So when you read in the New Testament, the prophets said, no prophet ever thought that prophet was talking about something 700 years in the future. They were talking about their own day. But these first Jesus followers went back to the Bible and they begin to reimagine and reinterpret. And they begin to see their Jesus experience being affirmed and validated and popping up in all sorts of beautiful places. But what made, why were they able to go back and do that? They were able to go back and do that because this is a people, the Jewish people, who have experienced oppression for millennia. Like when, when we come to the defining moment One of the defining moments in the Hebrew scripture, what is it? It's an enslaved group of people, the Hebrews, being liberated from bondage through the Exodus. One of the defining narratives. And from that moment on, they had known oppression from the Egyptians, from the Assyrians, from the Babylonians, from the Persians, from the Greeks, and then from the Romans, one empire after another. And I think one of the reasons we maybe struggle to understand the Jesus story is because a good chunk of us, me, a good me, I'll just say for me, I have not lived my life experiencing oppression. I have not had to reimagine things because I've had experiences of oppression. Some people have, and I think they get the Jesus story a little bit easier than people like me. So we come to the Hebrew scriptures, they reimagine the stories. And that's why if you were to look at, how many of you know what a lectionary is? Sounds like something you would throw your back out trying to do. um electionary is essentially, there are these cycles of readings that go for three years that essentially lots of churches use to, to shape the sermon time because it gets you through most of the Bible in a three-year period. Does that make sense? But when you come to Advent, most of the lectionary texts, many of them are from the Hebrew Bible, specifically from the prophet Isaiah. Not because the prophet Isaiah was writing about Jesus, but because the prophet Isaiah was writing in his own context of oppression. And when the first Jesus followers read that, they began to see Jesus emerge from those pages. It was a reimagining of scripture that they desperately needed to make sense of their own. Experience. And so today we're gonna to look at one of those texts from the book of Isaiah. Now I wanna give you a little context for the book of Isaiah just so you know kind of what was happening in the world. First of all, one of the things scholars have kind of deduced is that there is no one book of Isaiah that actually what we call the book of Isaiah was probably the work of maybe three different people that there was this original prophet who wrote in the eighth century, somewhere between 742 and 701, um, who wrote the first 39 chapters, who was the actual prophet Isaiah that's talked about in the beginning of the book. Then there's, they call him second Isaiah, or some some scholars like to use fancy words and call him Deutero-Isaiah, which is kind of cool. Um, And and he wrote uh, in the sixth century, around the year 540, Chapters 40 through 55. Um, and so the first Isaiah wrote during a time when the Assyrian Empire was threatening to wipe out Judah. They actually did wipe out the northern kingdom of Israel, took it off the map forever. And they were turning their attention to Judah. And so Isaiah is writing during a time of high anxiety. Are we going to be destroyed? Are we going to be torn down? Is anything going to be left of us? Are we in big, big trouble? Then second, Isaiah wrote during the time when the Persian empire displaced the Babylonians. It was a little bit better time. Then third, Isaiah wrote later in the sixth century after the return from exile. Today, we're gonna look at Isaiah two, which means we're gonna look at a text that was written when the Assyrian empire was breathing down the necks of the people of Judah. And maybe you'll begin to see why early Jesus followers would go back to a text like this and begin to see in the Jesus story what they would call a fulfillment of Isaiah's vision. All right, so here's the text, Isaiah chapter two. This is what Isaiah, Amos' son, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now remember, everybody's scared. Are we going to be wiped out? Is it all over? In the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house, the temple, will be the highest of the mountains. It will be lifted above the hills. People will stream to it. Many nations will go and say, come, let's go to the Lord's mountain, to the house of Jacob's God, so that he may teach us his ways and we may walk in God's paths. Instruction will come from Zion, the Lord's word from Jerusalem. God will judge between the nations and settle disputes of mighty nations. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning tools. Nation will not take up sword against nation. Uh, They will no longer learn how to make war. Come house of Jacob, let's walk by the Lord light. In the face of everything falling apart and total destruction, Isaiah has a vision of a world that is coming, a world that could be. And it's a world for Isaiah where it's grounded in hope. And this hope of Isaiah is that they will move from being threatened to flourishing. Do you get, like, when you know that the, the enemy is at the gate when he writes these words, And he talks about God will settle the disputes of the nations, i.e., God maybe would be able to stop them from harming us if they would listen. Isaiah envisions a world where people can move from being threatened to actually flourishing. It's it's really hard to flourish when you feel threatened, right? How many of you worry about anything at all ever? (laughs) Who doesn't? It's your turn with the mic. Like, yeah, and and it's hard to flourish when you're wondering what's next and is the other shoe going to fall? Isaiah's hope is this world of moving from survival to justice, It's really hard to concentrate if you have an empty belly. It's hard to concentrate if you feel like you've been forgotten, marginalized, and left out. And Isaiah sees this world where we're no longer just surviving but it's a world of justice where everybody has enough, where nobody is left out, where nobody is harmed, where, where nobody has to fight and call just for their right to exist. That's Isaiah's vision. And I love, like You can find different visions of God and different visions of the world, the future world, in the Bible, right? There's no one. That's, a, that's another reason why it's not a one story focused on one thing. Because you can go, you can turn in some pages and you'll find, like where Isaiah says, swords into plowshares. There are other prophets who are like, no, no, no. Let's take those plowshares and let's turn them into swords, right? Like there are other visions. There are visions of God that are very narrow, visions of God that are very exclusive. Of course that's in the Bible but there are also visions of God that move from narrow to universal. And that's Isaiah's vision. Do you get it? Like there's this moment where every nation will stream to the temple and we will find justice and we will not be threatened and we will not be harmed. There will be room and space for everyone. Other prophets talk about everybody will have their own vine and fig tree, which is a way of saying everybody will have enough. In a world where people are starving, everybody will have access to shelter and food, everybody will have enough. Isaiah had this longing for a world from threatening to flourishing, from survival to justice, from narrow to universal. And those longings are still present in so many people today. Um, Last Sunday morning, I woke up in Denver, Colorado, and I woke up because uh, my right hip hurt, which is the thing that happens to me now. And it just wakes me up in the middle of the night or early morning, and I'll be very frustrated by this, but it just wakes me up out of nowhere. And I woke up and I was getting a glass of water and um, I got on my phone and I just began scrolling social media and I heard about what happened at Club Q in Colorado Springs, just an hour. South, and we have some folks in our Grace Point family who are in Colorado Springs. I actually got to meet them in person for the first time Sunday evening last week. But I woke up to the news of the Club Q shooting, and I thought maybe just this morning we should read their names um, because their names matter and who they were matters. Raymond Green Vance, pronouns he, him, Kelly Loving, she, her, Daniel Aston, he, him. Derek Rump, he, him, and Ashley Pa, she, her. And such a tragic, senseless, unnecessary, hateful act that altered the lives not only of five people and their families, but of so many people who are present, so many people who are connected and so many people who know more, who, who are just being reminded now, oh, they're really like safe places. Does that, is that even a thing? Or people who are just seeking to live their lives and live out their existence are having to look over their shoulder. It's a symptom of a really big problem in this country. Just like the fact that we have already had over 600 mass shootings in this country as of this week. That's second That's second most ever in our country. You know when the most was? 2021. We still have a month left. Every time one of those stories comes across the wire, one of the first things that comes to my mind is how long? Anybody else? How long? How long do we put the right to own weapons of war above the right of other people to just simply exist? How long? When can we move from survival to a just world? When can we actually begin to flourish, to be our full selves without fear that somebody else is going to decide to take our lives? When? How long? How long? I just imagine the prophets seeing those headlines and going, how long until swords are beaten into plowshares? Isaiah wrote those words a long, long time ago. And not only have we not beaten our swords into plowshares, we've gotten really, really, really good at making swords. How long? There are longings for justice and equity among marginalized communities, among the BIPOC community. There are longings for justice and equity among women. There are longings for justice and an end to abuse, especially abuse in settings that should be safe from it, like churches. There are longings for economic justice, as I hear from my friends who work with those who are unhoused, and how unnecessary it is that anybody in this world would be unfed or unhoused. And there's a collective groan from humanity, from some of us, which is how long? How long do some people get to grow richer and richer and more and more powerful at the expense of other human beings. Every time I hear that like billionaires became more billionaire during the pandemic and that oil companies are bringing in record profits while they claim that, oh, we're just the price of gas. How long? How long do the rich and powerful get to become more rich and powerful at the expense. And if you think this feels like politics, you're starting to understand the Jesus story because you can't separate it. Jesus was born into a political climate of injustice and oppression. And in that sense, the Christmas story happened in the first century, but it could happen in every context, in every culture from then to now and before because there have always been certain people who have all the power and all the wealth and they use it to control and harm others. And if I've sufficiently depressed you, let's hit pause and let me just say, this is what hope is for. Like, If there were no problems, we wouldn't be talking about hope. And in the face of all of these challenges, it seems, I'll be honest, sometimes it seems a little silly, right? To enter into a season like this and we're talking about hope and peace and joy Really, how out of touch are we to be talking about joy? And yet, I think that this season is, what it's trying to say is actually, this is why you, the world's a mess. That's why you need these gifts. The world's a mess. That's what hope is for. Because hope is the fuel that brings change. All change, all transformation, everything that needs to happen in the world begins with some people who have decided to be hopeful and not pessimistic about the world people who have chosen not to give in to despair because despair is the thing that causes us to throw our hands up and just say it is what it is right the world just is what it is and pushing back on it and trying to change it and using our voice and our vote and marching and trying to advocate for fair housing and all of those things it's just a lot and i'm tired and it's you know i've got that thing where i just want to sleep a little bit and that's that's cool but but can it like it really doesn't do anything in the world and so i'm just done And despair is an attractive option because engaging is costly, costs energy, costs resources, costs emotional and physical energy. And yet hope is the thing that causes us to participate and be part of the change that is desperately needed. Andy read this quote from Anne Lamott earlier, and I love it. Hope begins in the dark. Isn't that great? Like, if, the, if it's not dark, you don't need hope. Hope begins in the dark, the stubborn hope that if you just show up and try to do the right thing, the dawn will come. You wait and watch and work and you don't give up. See, Advent is about waiting. Anybody good at waiting? I've always been told patience is a virtue. My response is, I don't, I don't have that one. <laughs> I've tried to get some other ones to compensate. I don't like to wait. I don't like to stand in lines. I I want to order something on the internet and for it to appear in my hand in the moment. Like I do not do waiting well. And Advent is a season of waiting, but I wonder if we've gotten it a little bit backwards. Perhaps Advent is not a season of us waiting for God. This is how we've traditionally looked at it. We're waiting for God. We're waiting for God to show up. We're waiting for God to do a thing. We're waiting for God to bring liberation. We're waiting for God to bring healing. We're waiting for God to bring the light back. Maybe Advent isn't about us waiting for God. Maybe Advent is a reminder that God has always been waiting for us. And that those moments where we feel like God has shown up God has not shown up at all, we did. We decided to engage. We decided to check in. Maybe God has been waiting for us all along to embrace the stubborn hope that causes us just to show up and try. Just to take what we have, what we've been given, what we've been entrusted with, whatever gifts, abilities, talents, resources we have to just show up and say, could this this be useful? I, I think we are waiting for experts that aren't coming. And we're waiting for the clouds to part and somebody to show up and bippity boppity boo the problems of the world, and it's not coming. Perhaps that second coming that we've all been waiting for is actually what happens when we show up, when we check in, when we engage. The stubborn hope that refuses to concede the world or even the Christian faith. Y'all, people ask me all the time why in the world are you still Christian? Because I'm stubborn because I'm not giving it up because I won't let them have it because they've they've turned Jesus into somebody I cannot recognize and I refuse to let that be the only version of Jesus that's out there in the world. I'm stubborn. The stubborn refusal to give up the world or our faith to those who are driven by hatred and greed And instead, the kind of hope that rolls up its sleeves and gets its hands in the muck and problems and mud of the world. Because I think that's ultimately what incarnation is about. Um, How many of you have heard that word before, incarnation? It sounds like it could be like a magic word, right? Or it sounds like something you drink at breakfast. Uh, It's an incarnation instant breakfast. You'll love it in an instant, right? Like that sort of situation. The incarnation is just this Latin word that means in flesh. It means something is in flesh. How many of you in the room in flesh right now? Okay, we know who the ghosts are. How many of you on the internet are in flesh? Raise your hands. All of us, right? It means to be in flesh. And in Christian theology, it's used to talk about Jesus, that Jesus is somehow the divine incarnate, in flesh. But that's what the idea of our incarnation is about. That God doesn't stand back from the problems of the world. That God isn't just standing back going, not interested, can't do anything about it. That God actually moves to work in the world. And the way God always moves to work in the world is through people, through Jesus, and through you and me. That's how God always shows up in the world. Every good thing that has been given to me has never just appeared out of thin air. It has always come through another human being. Every act of compassion has never been just from some sort of ethereal realm. It has always been through a human being who in that moment was incarnating the love of the divine to me. And I bet that's true for you too. And maybe the whole point of this idea of incarnation isn't just about Jesus. But maybe what Jesus was trying to do Maybe what Jesus was about is showing us what's possible for all of us. Our founding pastor, Stan Mitchell, will often talk about how Jesus is the archetype, right? Jesus is not the, the end all be all. Jesus is showing us, he's the blueprint. He's showing us this is what you can be. This is what being human can be like. You can join God in the healing and repair of the world. This is what being human can be like. There's something about this particular season that makes us all or most of us feel a little bit more generous than maybe we would at other times. Something about this season that maybe just gives us a little spark of hope. Maybe that just invites us into joy a little bit more, even if it's just watching kids love Santa Claus so much. Right, maybe that's, maybe that's part of it. Maybe it's, it invites us to believe that outside of just saying like, oh, world peace, that'd be great. Maybe it begins to make us believe that it's possible that maybe our world could be a peaceful place where everybody has enough and nobody goes to bed hungry or unhoused. Where nobody gets left out or forgotten. Where who somebody loves is no longer a thing that other people look at and decide, well, you should, you should not be allowed to live. where we stop looking at other religions and telling them, well, you're going to hell because you're not like us. This time of year makes me just feel a little bit more hopeful. Now, what would happen if we decided that we were going to be the incarnation of hope in the world? That we were actually not going to just sing about it and talk about it, but that we wanted. We want to join our energies with the energy of God to bring about a different kind of world because it's possible. What if, what if you actually are, and I, what if we are the only hands and feet that Christ has in this world? And what if we chose to give in to that stubborn hope? This morning we sang, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It's one of my favorite Advent songs. It's a true Advent song, right? You're technically, they say you're not supposed to sing Christmas songs until after Advent's over, but no, they don't tell us what to do. We sing Christmas songs anyway. <laughs> but there's something about, oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, because that longing, oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, Emmanuel, God with us, come. And perhaps the whole time that song is not being sung from us to God, it's being sung from God to us. Perhaps the invitation has not been God, come back to us. But perhaps the invitation has always been God saying, join me. There's a world that needs hope, peace, joy, and love. Join me in creating it. Embrace the stubborn, ridiculous notion that what is, is not what has to be. Perhaps, O come, O come, Emmanuel, perhaps it's an invitation for us to realize we are the presence of Jesus in the world. And and there's work for us to do in front of us. So here's the thing, today, maybe you're here and you're in need of hope. One of the things I have found over my years of being a pastor is that it's okay to borrow from other people. Now, I grew up being taught differently. I grew up being taught that if you were going to pray a prayer and you didn't come up with it, if you wrote it ahead of time, or if you prayed a prayer somebody else wrote, that that was just like awful, um, and you shouldn't do that. You should all, it should all be spontaneous and you should come up with it on your own. And then when I was in seminary, I was in a seminary based on a different tradition than I grew up in. And, and we, uh, there was a student who led a devotion before class one day, and he was talking about a really dark period of his life. And he said, there was a time I just couldn't pray. And so I decided to let the church pray for me. And what he meant was I decided to just read. I had no words. And so I let the 2,000 years of church history, I just started praying other people's prayers. And somehow that gave me the encouragement I needed to move forward. So maybe today what you need is, like you, you feel like the hope tank is on empty. Maybe you need to, maybe there's somebody else in the room who is bursting with hope and you need to siphon a little off from their tank. And what that means is if you're here today and you're hurting and you feel alone and you feel unseen, we would love for you to find somebody you're near that you felt safe saying, hey, can I siphon a little hope off of you? Because I, I, I need to know I'm not alone and I need to know that light is coming and I need to know that how things are is not how they have to be. If that's you today, know that this is a safe place, that, that we, aren't, we don't buy into the whole bright, shiny, happy Christian thing where you have to just pretend it's all together, that it's okay to be where you are and who you are and that you don't have to do it alone. And today, if you're here, and you're bursting with hope share some of that share some of that people desperately need it there's something about knowing that you're not by yourself in the existent in your existence that is transformative so maybe if you have something to share, and maybe you're here today and you're like, you know what, I'm, I'm ready to actually, I want to embody hope. Then perhaps this week, that's the thing you think about is what, what does it look like in this situation, in this context, in this moment with these people, what does it look like to embody hope? What does it look like to embody hope? Because I'll be honest, I'm, I'm kind of tired of cynicism personally. I, I lived pessimistically for a very long time. I long to be a person whose hope is contagious. I want to be a community that has such hope for what could be in the world that we don't just sit back and dream it, that we actually begin to build it and create it and do it in all the ways that we possibly can. Are you with me? You are Emmanuel, friends. And the the long-awaited arrival that we're anticipating is not god's arrival or jesus arrival it is ours so may we show up and may we see the opportunity to share all the good gifts that are around us